Why Catholic is made possible by generous patrons. If you're blessed by this podcast, consider supporting it by purchasing something from the Why Catholic merch shop on Etsy. Link is in the show notes. Original designs on sweatshirts, t-shirts, hats, decals, and more. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear how you can get a special discount. Thanks for supporting Why Catholic. As many of you know, I was a Protestant for 39 years. For 11 of those years, I served in pastoral ministry. When I decided to step down from pastoring, I found myself in a very strange predicament. I could choose any church to attend. For my whole life, I had never had that luxury, if you can call it a luxury. I grew up in a small denomination called Seventh-day Baptist, and so I only went to a Seventh-day Baptist church, even if I had to drive 45 minutes to get there. When I left that denomination, I was hired on pastoral staff at a church called New Hope Chapel. I had never experienced the church shopping culture that's so prevalent in evangelical circles. But when I left pastoral ministry and moved from Maryland to Pennsylvania, I had this freeing and also frightening thought that I could go to any church that I wanted. I didn't realize it at the time, but that was the moment I began deconstructing church. Not deconstructing my Christian faith, but deconstructing church. Every church seemed so independent and so isolated. Church seemed hyper-focused on an event that occurred one day a week within four walls, and it made me feel claustrophobic. When COVID happened and churches were forced to close for a time, many pastors scrambled to keep their churches going and relevant. For many, that meant turning on the cameras and bringing the Sunday program to the living room. I know a number of people that stopped quote-unquote attending their church. Suddenly, church wasn't about a particular place they went to, so they could tune in on the internet and visit just about any church in the world. Why listen to my pastor who delivers mediocre sermons, one friend told me, when I could tune into the dynamic celebrity pastor in Texas and then the next one in California. One night, really frustrated with my experiences of church culture, I began thinking about what church should look like. Unity was on the top of the list. When COVID was over, I wanted to be a part of a church that embodied unity, that wasn't locked into four walls or restricted to one country's borders. I wanted to be a part of a worldwide church. I continued down this rabbit hole envisioning what this church might look like. Suddenly, I stopped myself and asked one of the scariest questions I could have ever thought of. Am I really looking for the Catholic Church? Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. Since episode 51, we have been in a series focusing on a phrase from the Nicene Creed and exploring what it means to be one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Glaring at us unabashedly is that word one, one church. In the last episode, I talked about how eventually we'll all become one church in heaven, but I don't think Jesus wanted us to wait until heaven to achieve that unity. I don't know if you've looked around lately, but there's a lot more than just one church. There are some 47,000 different denominations. It's not just the Lutheran church. There are over 40 different types of Lutherans. It's not just Baptists. There are over 60 different Baptist denominations. And then there's all the independent churches, which make up the largest segment of churches in the United States. If non-denominational were a denomination, it would be the largest Protestant one, claiming more than 13% of church goers in America. There are 9,000 more non-denominational churches in 2022 than there were in 2012. Church is anything but unified. And it's a shame. It's a real shame. 
The night before Jesus' crucifixion, he prayed for hours in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed until he was sweating blood. One of the central focuses of his prayer was for the unity of his followers. In John 17, 21, he said, quote, May all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, end quote. If we call ourselves Christians, followers of Jesus, we cannot reject Jesus' dying wish for unity. I think most Christians would agree. They believe that there is some sort of mystical unity. So the question we should ask is, what kind of unity did Jesus envision? Well, Jesus told us he wanted the church to emulate the Trinity. So in order to understand the type of unity God wanted, we need to understand the example he chose, the relationship of the Trinity. The Trinity is perhaps the most complex yet essential dogmas of Christianity. We believe in one God and three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The persons of the Trinity are so intimate and intertwined that it creates a single unified being, which we call God. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one. And God establishes a singular being in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4, which states, quote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, end quote. In fact, Jesus emphasized the mystical union of the Trinity when he said, quote, If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father, end quote. I'd like to highlight a few details about the Trinity to help us better understand the type of unity Jesus wanted for us. First, each of the persons of the Godhead has a different role, which they carry out to further the collective purpose. In the creation account, we see the complexities of God in various forms. The Spirit hovers over the water. God speaks, and we learn later in John 1, that the Word of God is actually the second person of the Trinity. They all work together. It's like God saying, okay, we're going to create, and then each of the persons of the Trinity operates towards that purpose. Over and over, we see glimpses of the Trinity throughout the Old Testament. For example, Moses approaches God, and God says in Exodus 33, 20, quote, No one can see my face and live, end quote. Yet we see Abraham have a face-to-face conversation with God before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We also see this with Jacob when he wrestles with God, and Joshua just before the Battle of Jericho. How can these three see the face of God even though Moses was not permitted to? The answer is likely that Moses encountered maybe God the Father, while Abraham, Jacob, and Joshua experienced a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, or the second person of the Trinity. We see the Holy Spirit on many occasions. How many times do we read that the Spirit of the Lord came upon someone? Joshua, one of the judges, David, one of the kings, or one of the prophets. We often don't think about the different roles that each of the persons of the Trinity played because they're so unified, we see them almost as indistinguishable. Yet it appears that when God wanted to empower someone towards some mighty act, that was the role of the Holy Spirit. When someone needed a face-to-face meeting with God, that was the role that the Son fulfilled. This theme continues in the New Testament. Of course, the most obvious example is Jesus, the Son. He became incarnate of the Virgin Mary and has a public ministry where he heals people and forgives sins. He is crucified and rises from the dead on the third day. But we also see the role of God the Father. Not as obvious, but Jesus explains over and over that the Father is in control. Jesus prays to the Father and the Father empowers him. And when Jesus ascends to heaven, it's the role of the Holy Spirit to empower the believers. Not only do we see this function of various roles with a singular unified purpose, but we see secondly a function that includes submission to each other. For example, the role of the incarnation and redemption was given to the Son, but we also see the Son submit to the Father. 
Talking about the end times, Jesus says in Matthew 24, 36, quote, but about that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the son, but only the father, end quote. He recognized that wasn't for him to know, and he yielded that responsibility to the father. Perhaps the most famous of this example of inner submission was in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed in Luke twenty-two forty-two, quote, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done, end quote. We also see Jesus submitting to the Holy Spirit. In John 16, 17, Jesus tells his disciples, quote, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate, referring to the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, end quote. Not only do we see the persons of the Trinity complement each other and submit to each other, we also see them celebrate and promote each other. Matthew three sixteen through 17 tells us that, quote, When Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased, end quote. Do a search on how many times Jesus refers to the Father, particularly in the Gospel of John. He's constantly celebrating, referring to him as generous and loving. For example, John 3.35 states, quote, The Father loves the Son and has placed all things in his hands, end quote. And after Jesus ascends into heaven, we see the Holy Spirit bringing people to the Son and the Son bringing people to the Father. Finally, to be unified in the sense of modeling the Trinity means a sharing of possessions. In the famous Bread of Life discourse, Jesus states, quote, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and him who comes to me I will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day, end quote. Just after his resurrection, Jesus tells his disciples, quote, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, end quote. The Trinity exemplified unity in that they shared everything in common. The father didn't say, no son, that's mine. He entrusted the son with everything he owned. And when the son ascended into heaven, he entrusted the church to the Holy Spirit. Thus, we can say, albeit ever so cursory, that to emulate the unity of the Trinity means to utilize our distinctions and differences for a common mission, to willingly obey one another in loving submission, to celebrate each other, and to share our possessions in the spirit of trust. And because Jesus desired unity for his followers, we might also say that to move towards that type of unity is to move towards Jesus, and to move away from it is to move away from Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 25, quote, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand, end quote. Satan is well aware of this, so he knows that the best way to undermine the kingdom of God is to divide it. Schism is his most effective weapon. His ultimate goal is not to create scandals in the church. It's to divide the church. Scandals such as sexual impropriety, abuse, financial embezzlement ultimately destroy the church because it sows distrust, which leads to fracture. The church community becomes isolated, and as every soldier will tell you, isolation is a very dangerous place to be in a battle. I grew up in a Baptist tradition, and one distinction that Baptists have and celebrate is the autonomy of the local congregation. This developed specifically because of distrust. In establishing Baptist polity, the Baptist founders looked at other hierarchical denominations and saw some of the heavy-handed authority and wanted nothing to do with that. 
And so they designed a denomination where there was no hierarchy. The local church had total autonomy. If a leader in the denomination wanted to come and talk to us about something, they had to ask. They couldn't just show up and call a meeting. They couldn't tell us who was going to be our pastor. They couldn't dictate how we spent our money. The irony of that Baptist denomination was that autonomy was meant to build trust, but at the end of the day, the autonomy didn't sow trust, but distrust. I was once asked by someone in the denomination to consider a particular leadership position of one of the major ministries. When I asked why they were thinking of me for this position, the person said that I would be good at keeping the ministry independent from the denomination. I've never seen a denomination more adamant about autonomy, yet more distrusting of each other. I attended a Presbyterian church for a couple of years, and one Sunday we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Thank you, God, for Martin Luther, one of the leaders prayed, going on and on about how Martin Luther and the Reformers saved Christianity. Even as a Protestant, it felt gross. It felt like we were celebrating a divorce. It felt akin to celebrating an independence. Ecclesiastical autonomy and independence are not biblical concepts. They are Western concepts injected into one's interpretation of the Bible. Moving towards independence is moving away from Jesus and away from his design for a unified church. God, who is a communal being, created us for community. We see this throughout the Gospels and the early church. Jesus could have come as a soldier riding in on a Mustang, but instead, how does he arrive? He's incarnated in the womb of a woman. In the Genesis story, God uses the community of husband and wife. In the gospel, he uses the community of mother and child. When Jesus grew older, what was his first act of ministry? He called 12 disciples. Again, Jesus didn't lack the capacity to be a one-man show. He could have gone at it alone, but he didn't. He called 12 seemingly random guys to join him to share in his work. At the transfiguration, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to a mountain, and there Moses and Elijah appeared and conversed with Jesus. There's a perfect picture of the communion of saints. The future leaders of Christianity are introduced to two of the most famous Jewish leaders in history. Jesus brought the community together, past, present, and future. After Jesus' ascension, the Holy Spirit came at the Feast of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit empowered the entire community of believers that were gathered together in Jerusalem. They worked together to proclaim the gospel to the crowds, and 3,000 people were baptized and received salvation. As the church took its first steps on Pentecost, we see a pattern that will get repeated over and over. The church grows through community. Someone from the Christian community preaches the gospel, an individual hears and believes, and a member of that Christian community baptizes that individual. And either the same person or someone else from the Christian community lays their hands on the individual so that they will receive the Holy Spirit. Just as God's plan of atonement operated within the community of Israel, so God's plan of salvation operates within the community of the church. Of course God designed it that way. He's been doing it since the time of creation. He includes others in his work, and in his work he brings together people into community. Jesus explained in Matthew 18, 20, quote, Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them, end quote. Right after the arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, we're given a description of the church in its most ideal state. In Acts 2, 42-47, we read, quote, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. 
Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. End quote. The church in Acts was made up of different people with different roles, all working together towards the same purpose. They submitted to each other and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They celebrated each other, especially the signs and wonders. And they entrusted each other with their possessions and had everything in common. What does that sound like? It sounds like the relationship of the Trinity. As I was considering various churches and denominations during COVID, the conclusion I came to was that there was no church more seriously committed to unity than the Catholic Church. In upcoming episodes, I'll go into various facets and specifics about the unity of the Catholic Church. But in saying that, I also want to acknowledge that the Catholic Church is not perfect, nor does it always emulate the Trinity as it should. For example, there's a fairly significant segment of Catholics that take every opportunity to criticize and bash Pope Francis. There are very loud politicians who claim to be Catholic yet willfully and deliberately promote the atrocity of abortion or neglect the poor and the immigrants. And of course, there are the notorious cases of priests who have sexually abused children. Sometimes I wonder how the Catholic Church has survived all these years despite itself. The reason it has is because the Holy Spirit has been that unifying force. In every generation, there have been examples of insubordination, disunity, and scandal in the Catholic Church. It has always faced a constant barrage of heresies and power struggles. The Church is often slow to change. It is often reactive rather than proactive. But each wound from the past has brought the church to where it is today, scarred yet beautiful, limping yet thriving, the largest and oldest institution in the world still carrying on the mission of Jesus and the apostles. Ultimately, the responsibility of unity begins with each one of us individually. We have to choose to emulate the Trinity with respect to our church community. We can't expect others to do something that we are unwilling to do. How can we emulate the Trinity as a church? We utilize our distinctions and differences for a common mission. We willingly obey one another in loving submission, and we share our possessions in the spirit of trust. This is the example that Christ gave his church. Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it and patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.